0: steve and kevin dig deep into the intricacies of vintage online on episode 38 of so many insane plays welcome to episode 38 of so many insane plays in today's episode we'll be taking a deep look into vintage on magic online the metagame, its implications for Vintage Champs, and the platform itself. I'm Kevin Krohn with Steven Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any questions or comments, you can tweet us at ManyInsanePlays, email us at SoManyInsanePlaysPodcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManaDrain.com. don't have a lot of announcements today, but Steve, you're participating in a pretty awesome thing that we haven't covered on the show yet, the Vintage Super League. What can you tell the audience about that?
1: Well, uh, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later, mm-hmm. but the Vintage Super League is the brainchild of Randy Buehler, All-Fame Magic player, former head of Magic R&D, all-around amazing guy, and he had a vision for creating a league that you couldn't do before Magic Online, mm-hmm. which you invite... Few vintage ringers and a lot of Hall of Famers and professional Magic players to uh, compete uh, week by week for for nine weeks, actually ten weeks, including the the finals. Um, and it's an opportunity to showcase the format. The the matches have been really interesting. Folks like LSV, Rich Shea, myself, um, Randy, David Williams, and, and and others. So the the right now we're in the sort of just finished week three in the heart of it.
0: It's a very interesting platform. You've got obviously good players, uh, vintage specialists such as yourself and Rich, but also Hall of Famers and uh, and uh, pro tour winners. It's it's really you can't lose by watching it.
1: Yeah. I mean, what's your experience been watching it?
0: It's been great. The it's just fascinating to see people's takes on the format who are pros but don't necessarily play vintage a lot. So right. there's some just it, it's the metagame. Unfortunately, is a little bit insular because of the nature of the tournament, right. because it's round robin, as as you know, and uh, there's also a unique spin in the middle where people can change decks after round three. So, right,
1: it's a, it feels a little bit like the Magic Invitational.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got
1: a, a small cohort; everyone plays everyone. The difference is that instead of changing formats after three rounds, you have the opportunity to change decks at every three rounds. So and the top the top four players will play off at the end of the tournament. And the last place player is the most important position will not be invited to next year's Vintage Super.
0: <laughs> so it's a really interesting uh, format, and the players are great. The decks are uh, spread the gamut of most of the Vintage metagame online, so it's, it's pretty cool. We'll talk about it later. Yeah, and you've got some updates to your Gush book in progress.
1: The Gush book is, is completely written. It's just in the process of being edited, which is frankly more time-consuming than I'd hope, partly because the Vintage Super League has really sucked up a lot of my free time, both participating in it, but also sort of streaming the night after. Pretty much in every match, uh, every week so far, I've, the following night, I've restreamed my match from my perspective, explaining, walking through my um, decision tree, but also interacting with folks in the chat, answering questions in a, in a way that you don't really have an opportunity to do during the match itself. So um, you know that's that's just sucked up a lot of time. But I it, the, the Gush book is is going to be great. Um, we're taking it's going to be both in paperback and uh, as an ebook, just like the uh, the the second edition of the Gush book was.
0: All right. Any other announcements?
1: Um, I don't think
0: there are any upcoming tournaments on my end of the of the, the country. What about on your in the Midwest? There are a few in Michigan coming up on the twentieth and the twenty seventh the uh, hopefully we'll get this show up before then so if any of you are listening and not planning to go already you can make it out to those and the team series opens are coming up next month in ohio
1: Wizards introduced Vintage on Magic Online in late mid-June. But the vintage cards weren't all available at the time, and it took you know a few more weeks after that for a lot of the power to matriculate out of the vintage uh, masters packs. So I'd say we'd had we've had probably a good two solid months of competitive vintage tournament results on Magic Online. And by tournament results, I'm referring to basically three things: one, the daily events that are four rounds every day, and we can look at the 4-0 decks to get a sense of what some of the baseline trends in the metagame are. There was one premiere event that I helped organize with Steve O'Connell. We actually got 64 players for that event, which is the maximum capacity. And then there is, of course, the vintage... Championship uh, tournament online, um, and Kevin, you've had a chance to sort of comb through all of those results, have you? Haven't you?
0: The recent ones, more specifically, the early ones had a lot of variance in them, I think, but I believe that the metagame has settled a little bit in the last month.
1: Well, well t- tell us your findings. What sort of trends are you seeing? What
0: What's doing well? In the dailies and the 4-0 decks, there's a jockeying for position, I believe, between workshops. A little bit of dredge, and then bugfish, rug delver, and. Gush Pyromancer Gush decks. What do you mean by
1: Pyromancer Gush decks if they aren't
0: rug Delver? I think the primary difference between a Pyromancer Gush is it straddles the line between rug Delver and Grixis Control. It's got the Pyromancers and the Snapcasters, but then it has some of the bigger endgame finishers like Moss Will as well. So it's a little bit more like a thing. Yeah. And I think that the, the standings, the results from Vintage Champs, which happened on August 30, really encapsulates the metagame Right about now, very well. The 50 decks included Terra Nova and Stacks, two stack stacks. Decks, a bug. Well, tell t- t-
1: tell our listeners what Terra Nova is.
0: So Terra Nova is a workshop-based deck that issues some of the bigger creatures in the other decks, such as uh, Forge Master, Forge Master, and Metalworker, and Carns, and, and, and other things like that. Focuses more on mana denial, has multiple man lands. It doesn't have smoke stacks, but it has factories and muta vaults and usually dismembers. Those are some of the features of Terra Nova. It's been performing quite well in it in, in, in the uh, paper world at one Waterbury a couple weeks ago.
1: Yeah, what I think is distinctive about Terra Nova is it's all in on the Manland plan. Mm-hmm. Which actually gives it you know, surprising synergy because you can attack through all your spheres. You don't have to play creatures. But also, it's pretty good against Oath because you don't need to have a creature in play.
0: Exactly. So you,
1: can just, you can Wasteland the Orchard, dismember the token, and it's hard for the Oath player to,
0: to trigger the Oath. And it gets to maximize Null Rod also, which is... I think
1: that's the, that's a huge feature of Yeah, it. which is quite Null huge. Null is just so good in Workshop decks because it's often like a double sphere.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's one of the ways that we've talked about it many times in the past it's one of the ways for workshop decks to buy back tempo even if your opponent was on the play and they got to deploy a land in multiple mocks and maybe play an important spell you can buy back tempo with null rod and tangle wire as other good examples of that but so those are the workshop decks jockeying for position there are three of them in the top and the 5-0 decks i mean in, in vintage champs then there was one Bugfish, one rug Delver, and one Pyromancer Gush deck. That's why I say I think the Vintage Champs really encapsulates the metagame. Those decks are jockeying for top finishes in the dailies. But the 4-1 decks include, basically, the rest of the metagame, which is also jockeying for position, Merfolk, Oath, Doomsday, Grixis Control, a couple derivations on Grixis, and Dredge. Now, it's not not to say that any of those decks can't go undefeated in a daily, it's just that I think that really summarizes the breakdown of the metagame at the moment.
1: That's interesting. I think that there are definitely some decks missing from that.
0: The deck that was
1: very prominent, the Waterbury, and I think will be very prominent in the Vintage Championship at Eternal Weekend, are the Blue-White Marion. So the Blue-White decks that, that on the one hand sometimes run Salvager's Combo, they typically all run a bunch of Cavern of Souls and Trinket mages and sometimes true name nemesis. And on the other hand, they sometimes run more of the Restoration Angel style deck. Um, you know, and sometimes have the uh, the Stone Stoneforge Forged. Mystic. Yeah. yeah. But that deck, that deck is very popular in the north. And it does very well. It has to be respected. That seems to be less less prominent in this metagame that you're describing right here.
0: It, the other it was deck, really it was popular early on in, in the first month or two of the online metagame. And for some reason at Vintage Champs it, it took a took a week off. But you're right. I would expect anyone, especially playing in paper world, but I expect you should still yep. be prepared for that deck online, even though it didn't do well at the Champs.
1: The other thing that seems to be missing is the Dak Faden decks. And uh, and there's a couple variants of this. So there's the of course Paul Mastriano, Brian Demars's um uh you know Steel City Vault combo deck. Mm-hmm. That, um, but there's you know which uses welders and thought casts. And a bunch of mocks and, and artifact lands with Dak Faden for great effect. But also the um, you know the, the the Steve O'Connell and Rich Shea control slaver deck, which, it, which is increasingly banking on a card that is becoming more and more prominent, which is notion thief. notion thief and Dak Faden is a two card combo that has to be respected in this format.
0: There were two different Grixis decks, one of which was what you're talking about. The other one was more of a standard Grixis control with Dark Confidants. But there was one deck, and it was Rich Shea at four and one in the champs. So that deck was represented by Rich. And in speaking of deck it's also featured in rug delver, sometimes the quantities vary between one to three. I've seen, but there was one copy in the five and zero rug delver list as well. So at the moment, obviously the online metagame can change quickly, but the key decks jockeying for position are workshops, a couple different derivations there. Which if you're going to play, you should be familiar with the workshop. I'm sorry, smokestack, forge master, Terra Nova kind of derivations. Dredge is up there performing well, occasionally 5-0 a daily, and it had two 4-1s and ones advantage champs. So Dredge is always to be respected. Bugfish, Rug Delver, Pyromancer Gush, Grixis Control, and Merfolk. Merfolk, which was overrepresented in the vintage Super League, uh, to much interesting discussion amongst the players, I think. But Merfolk got a lot of respect after Joel Lim's uh, paper vintage champs win last fall. And ever since then, it's been well represented in the online metagame.
1: Do you have a sense of how the Magic Online card economy may be impacting the online Vintage metagame?
0: <laughs> it's a very interesting point. So obviously Vintage Masters helped just about everything, but there's one thing that has stood out to me, and that is Hercule's Recall. Hercule's Recall still costs about a thousand percent more online than it does in real life. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I need to look up a, a current price here. Let me see if I can find someone that has a Hercule's Recall in their sideboard or main deck or sideboard. But last I saw it was something like $50 because it was still so rare online. And I've seen a lot of people running Rebuild, which I think in some cases, and I, I haven't met all of these people, but I bet that Rebuild is a nod to the fact that Hercule's Recall still costs so darn much money. Now, granted, these are these are people who've spent hundreds of dollars on... Force of Wills and Moxin and Black Lotus already, so I could be overestimating the impact there, but well,
1: I think that's one of the impacts. Of, yeah, what you, The implication of what you're saying is that workshops should be emboldened because one of its the best answers is Hercules Recall. But the flip side of that is that Wasteland is also now $150, 150 mm. tickets.
0: That's, so, that's a good point. That's a very good point. And Wasteland decks are not shy in the in the top places of the standings for the Dailies or Vintage Champs.
1: So I think the third card that impacts the meta metagame online is the cost of misdirection, which I think should be slightly more pre- prevalent. That just might be my own bias.
0: It's hard to say. Obviously, people are still spending a 1000 or $2 on a deck here. So a $50 card here or $150 card there, it's obviously not warping the metagame greatly. I think these are small influences at this point, thanks to Vintage Masters. Steve, have you talked to anyone or heard of anyone uh, substituting a card because they didn't have one, either in private conversations or the Vintage Super League or anything like that? Uh,
1: I, I, case in point, I have my Burning Pitch Burning Tendrils deck. I only have three Hercule's Recalls, where I would normally have four.
0: Yeah. So that's
1: an example of that. Just slight, slightly suboptimal.
0: Um, I have a feeling there's a little bit of that going on in a handful of decks. It's hard to spot. But yeah, I think there's a bit of it.
1: I, I do think though that you're not getting enough credit to the in the the cost of wasteland in terms of impacting the presence of workshops. I think workshops may, maybe that's that's turned, and there may be some may have been some other factors that contributed to that. But I think workshops are actually a little bit underrepresented, at least uh, up until September or you know mid to late August.
0: Okay, that's fair. The people who have committed to the wastelands and the workshop decks are doing well, but. Uh, the flip side, of course, is that the whole rest of the Workshop deck costs much less than the average, say, Grixis Control or Rugged Delver deck because of the last lack of Force of Wills and some other key restricted cards. And there's been a lot of fun conversation surrounding the Vintage Super League about whether or not you should run Black Lotus in Terranova. Which, well, it's a debate we we don't really need to rehash here. But if you're a fan of that debate, you can go read a more about it online. But yeah. if you don't, that re- dramatically yeah. reduces the cost of the Terra Nova deck.
1: We'll talk about this later, but the Vintage Super League has definitely opened up sort of the whole debate between sort of insider perspective and high-level outsider perspective and the validity of you know base power judgments about formats mm-hmm. that, that so often arise when these kinds of things happen. Um, but we'll we'll revisit that in a little bit.
0: Steve uh-huh. I know you've been preoccupied with the vintage Super League so your your online play has been focused toward that of late but have you played in many dailies and does the smallish nature of a daily influence your things like your deck selection and your approach to a metagame?
1: You know, I have played in a tiny number of dailies. Okay. I want to say like maybe three at most. Probably two. <laughs> I played in the premiere event that I organized, and I tried to organize another premiere event. We were just one or two people shy of being able for being able to fire that. Um but I played in a lot of two man's and that's just it it just happens that the dailies are inconveniently scheduled for me being out the the west coast and i get home you know around 7 seven thirty from work
0: mm-hmm. um and
1: so i just can't really make the, any of the dailies and i it's not worth it for me to plan a four-round event on a weekend so um
0: i looking at the undefeated decks in the dailies i don't get a good feel for all the other decks so i haven't i don't have a comprehensive study of the what else is being played yeah but looking at say this is the vintage daily from september 7 which was won by terra nova I'm sorry, the 4-0 decks were Terra Nova and Dredge. The 3-1 decks include Dredge, Oath, Control, 3-stacks decks, and (laughs) something listed as (laughs) Wooburg. So (laughs) what I'm getting at, though, is that these are not... These are not crazy decks in the metagame. That Wuurburg deck, by the way, is just—it's mostly a—that's a Grixis control deck, Snapcaster, Notion Thief. So these are not crazy decks. It's not pe- like people are throwing junk against the wall to see what sticks in the dailies. They're playing legitimate decks.
1: No, I think I think there was sort of an expectation that maybe Vintage on Magic Online would unleash sort of the creativity of people, and, and I think that that too, uh, was mistaken on two two respects. One, it, you know, it, to the extent that people expected a transformation of the metagame, it underestimated the people, the work that people who actually go to real tournaments do mm-hmm. in terms of investing in the format and also um i think a lot of the creativity is done at the margins now that you don't need to create a new deck to win tournaments what you need to do is you need to understand the metagame and do something like terra nova to position yourself well um mm-hmm. uh, i i think that there is it has been a tightening up so the people who play a lot of vintage on magic online i think will do better in real life magic but i think there have been some maybe unexpected things so i'm wondering if, and speculating here, but it seems to me a story of, of Vintage on Magic Online that may come to full expression in the Eternal Weekend is the resurgence of Dredge. Dredge mm-hmm. has been, for the last year and a half, kind of a back-of-the-pack player. I mean, it didn't even make the top eight of the Vintage t- Championship. I don't even know if it made top 16 last year, but it had always been a presence yeah. in the Vintage Championship top eight. And I'm wondering if... The, a couple things. This this will bleed into our next discussion on the platform, mm-hmm. and part of it we'll just hold for there. But I think that, that what may be going on is that Vintage on Magic Online gives Dredge pilots an opportunity to play Dredge so at ease, you know, on a with against high level pilots that they're able to find configurations technical configurations of cards that can actually beat a lot of the extant hate. So I'm looking at these dredge decks that are very different than the kinds of dredge decks that we've seen in real life, but have been developed on Magic Online. And there's two. There's the whole, I don't know if you've seen this, there's the dredge deck that that uses um, Thespian Stage uh, and Dark Depths in the sideboard. And that deck has has 0 a number of these dailies, and has performed very well, and I've lost to it multiple times in the dailies, Hmm. um, on the dailies in the the two-man queues. Um, the second thing is these dredge decks that have, you know, like, four mental misstep, and then, like, multiple nature's claims main deck, um... You know, I'm wondering if these dredge decks, again, if we're seeing an evolution, a subtle but nonetheless pronounced evolution in dredge decks because of the platform and the, the capacity by which you can compete at a high level against lots of opponents quickly. Um, and that kind of sort of quick processing of information, uh, quick ability to play against high-level talent, not just, you know, the, your friend, your buddy, and against a spectrum of decks and spectrum of players facilitates this kind of small-scale, small-bore evolution that can advance the archetype and help help it revive itself. An archetype that I frankly thought that people had you know, maybe hubristically thought was solved, that, that people had finally figured out the, the formula for defeating it. I, I see it coming back. And I don't think it's just a function of, of, um, of people being card constrained. I think that these are players who are making a conscious decision to play fetch.
0: I, You've got a lot of things you've said there, and I agree with pretty much all of it. Uh, Dredge benefits from the, the mass of data, basically, that you can gather in the online environment. Yeah. Playing a lot of small tournaments really benefits the development of this deck more so than something with more diverse pl- uh, lines and more diverse victory conditions like Grixis Control or some such. Grixis Control rewards experience with the deck, but, uh, ex- but learning pattern recognition in diverse set of scenarios whereas a deck like dredge benefits just from sheer volume of performances and a statistical analysis of those results
1: yeah and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be sort of an academic statistical analysis it can just be you know again just volume of play and 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 just experience which which guides you i mean uh, I'll just give you an example. I remember playing, I, I almost never lose to Dredge in tournaments. But I'm, you know, almost never. And I was playing a two-man queue against a Dredge pilot and in real-life tournaments you usually see a Dredge pilot miss queue at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and by that I mean they'll activate a bazaar at the wrong time post-board, you know, and, and it really puts them in a bad spot. A, a couple examples. When you're when you have a ley line of the void in play and your opponent activates Bazaar at the wrong time, it can really impact them because what they're trying to do is sculpt the hand where they can maybe therapy you mm-hmm. and hold the misstep and fire one or two Nature's Clans or Chain of Vapors out. But if they act if they use the Bazaar too aggressively, then they're actually emptying their hand too fast, so they can't accumulate what they need at the right pace. So there's mm-hmm. this like mixture of pace. An accumulation and search. Um, and and in real life, I've seen, and in, 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 I think in months past on Magic Online, you see a really bad dredge pilot, for example, play a second bazaar when you have a ley line in play, just trying to you know blindly look for the chain of vapor or whatever, mm-hmm. not realizing how badly that impacts their capacity to protect and resolve it or find the next one. Um, um, and so I, I think people, the dredge pilots are really tightening up from their play online. Um, And I wonder if – just to make one more concrete example, um, I was playing a match, and I made a very subtle miscue where I had a ley line in play, and I had Snapcaster Mage, and I had, I think, um, a mystical tutor and a gush, and I had like a Flusterstorm in my graveyard. And I made the decision – That like the I don't remember which line I played whether it was mystical for gush for the answer or whether it was snapcaster to replay the answer but I I did the wrong line and in retrospect if I had done the other line I would have won the game Um, it may have been I I don't I don't remember right now but was it that you left
0: yourself open to nature's claim or chain of vapor is that it
1: yeah but it was very very again very subtle and I had you know these these lines and it, it it normally wouldn't matter normally I would just be able to win no matter how small the openings I leave are. But I think that the dredge pilots are now finding ways to squeak through those tiny openings because of the voluminous experience and and the spectrum of being able to play consistently against high-level players, you know, against the spectrum of the field and skill level. Um, You know, the specifics don't matter, but the point is that I made a a judgment call that normally wouldn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I would would win uh, because I have two ways to counter it, but I I, I did the wrong one.
0: Um, Well, Steve, you've played a couple of... Uh, paper tournaments recently, and so have I. I haven't yet seen, although it hasn't, I haven't played in the last month. I haven't yet seen a, a huge impact from Vintage Online on the paper world. But yeah. one of our Michigan players, John Johnson, who plays Vintage Online and in real life, he brought one of those blue-white Stoneforge decks that was really sculpted in the online metagame to a paper tournament on the east side of Michigan and he did reasonably well with it. I, I would call that some bleed over a little bit, but so far no major impact from one versus the other at this point. And I think it goes to your point about the fact that there won't be there won't be some kind of revolution that happens online that all the paper players are going to pick up on. Right. It's just more right. more iterative, more educational, more historical data to pull from and more marginal change, yeah.
1: incremental. I think I do think though that we could see some shifts that express themselves at the Eternal Weekend. Mm-hmm. We're less likely to see it in a lot of the local tournaments because the local tournament players already have a handle of what they want to play in the metagame, and they're going to be less influenced by Vintage on Magic Online. But that might not be the case for the players who tend to only show up at the big events like Eternal Weekend, or who travel from far distances to compete at Eternal
0: Weekend. I think they're more like uh, yeah, them. it's a good point. And I think for our listeners, we're going to do a preview of Vintage weekend, um, I'm sorry, Eternal Weekend and Vintage Champs in a couple of weeks. But spoiler alert, if you want to do well at Vintage Champs, I think you're going to need to study the online metagame. Even if you don't play it, I think you need to study yeah. it because I, I predict that two to four members of the top eight at Vintage Champs will be people who play online. And they will know, they will have the benefits of these things that you might not if you're only a local paper player.
1: Yeah, I think that the formula is going to be like basically two parts Northeast metagame, one part Magic Online. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: a fair point, a very fair point. Well, so we've touched on it a few times already, but Steve, are you ready to talk about how the online platform really influences the format as a whole?
1: Yeah. For players who are interested in both the similarities and differences of Vintage on Magic Online and Vintage on um, Paper Magic, I think that folks should seek to understand and, and think about. implications of the differences between the platforms and the format and this is something that's come up in my sort of discussion of my deck in the context of the vintage super league but the more i played vintage on magic online the more i became aware of the functional differences that i think actually make a strategic difference in the game and people who who really you know people can acknowledge those differences and ignore them or they can take advantage of them and i think it's important for people to not only be aware of them but to Try and take advantage of them where they can if they really want to make, you know, the most of the platform. And so I think we should just take a moment and actually catalog those differences, explicate, and then explain why they matter. And, And I
0: want to double clarify, this isn't this isn't complaining about the online interface so much as identifying the key differences and what that does to one's strategy in the format. That's
1: right. What is the, What are the implications for your deck selection, for your deck design, your metagame positioning? I think it has implications for all of those
0: things. In addition to play, and, of course.
1: In addition to play. And I think it makes a difference, you know, especially in terms of the kind of analysis that we just conducted. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me just go through some of these, and then I'll try and make the case for why they really matter. Um, first. Magic Online reminds folks of all of your triggers, (laughs) delayed or not. Mm -hmm. And that makes a big difference in a number of situations. Um, Let's just take uh, uh, some of the, um, let's look at a tactical perspective, and then we can go to the strategic level. Tactically, it's simply the case that a lot of times people forget triggers in real life. Um, People forget our Confidant triggers. People forget Chalice of the Void triggers. People forget Mana Drain triggers. There have been, I mean, how many times have we observed someone forget Mana? Drain mana. Oh yeah, it happens all the time. Rich Shea actually said that he makes a game out of trying to resolve cards through opponent's chalice of the void, and I've observed him do it, (laughs) and it's successfully in multiple, in in at least one tournament.
0: And Um, and I don't want to I don't want to sell Rich short there. It's not just resolve so much as announce, because announcing cards into your opponent's chalice, even if you (laughs) <laughs> even if you are going to acknowledge the trigger at some point, yes. still has the tactical advantage of getting them to respond to it in many cases.
1: Right. When you play a spell, just the way that the rules work right now, when you play a spell that would be tr- it would trigger Chalice of the Void, it's essentially considered an optional trigger now. Yeah. For the the opponent has to basically make the Chalice counter your card. If they don't, your card can resolve through Chalice. Um. And Dark Confidant is now the same way. That's it's quote optional. Um. And so you know the values of these these cards change. Certainly, Mana Drain is better when the game reminds you you know that you have mana in your mana pool. Or Impact of Negation, you're never going to, you know, forget to, to pay for it. Um. So these delayed triggers, these recurring triggers, and these so-called optional triggers all change. And I think that's especially important for decks, it, moving the, to the strategic level, for decks like Dredge, which have a plethora of triggers Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) they live and die on triggers yeah they really do live
1: and and, and i don't know i don't know if it's the case but i would be surprised if there is a reg player out there who goes to an eight round tournament in a top eight who remembered every single trigger the entire day yeah. Never forgetting a single one. Um, so it changes the value of... I think Dredge is therefore much stronger on Magic Online, the choice.
0: And in addition to just the memory, I also believe, as we said, that playing Dredge online, it's sort of like it teaches you how to play the deck. Even if you had no, if you yeah. had no idea how the dredge yeah. deck worked in vintage, and someone yeah. loaned you the deck in Magic would, Online and said, "Here, just bulk into Bizarre, play it on the first turn, and activate it, and see what happens," because the the interface better. will then tell you, "Hey, can you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this?" Yeah. And you're like, "Why yes, I want to do all these things that make me win this yeah. game." <laughs> No, yeah. I don't want to sell the skill level short, but the point is, is that the interface instructs you what to do in a very real sense with a deck like Dredge, which would not happen at all in real life. You would have to be yeah. explained all of the interactions and be taught how to use them in a yeah. way that you would. not It's a little understand. bit like cheating. <laughs> I, I don't it's, want to go that far, but you've
1: got a, you've got a tutor right there, an electronic <laughs> tutor, telling you what to do. Yeah, in a sense. In a sense. Um, so, you know, I, I think that um, there are definitely differences.
0: Um, but what that city. means, so um, let's yeah. talk about deck choice just briefly. What that means yeah. is that if you brand new to the format and you don't have any idea what you're doing, Dreads is a really good choice online and a really bad choice in paper. Yes. So yes. that's that's a very real fundamental example of how the two environments are dramatically different from, say, a new person's standpoint.
1: Right. Right. There are other triggers that I think matter. Um, that I'll give another another example is time vault. Um, time vault is a card that players sometimes untap. Just, you know, and you're in a control mirror and you're playing draw go, a control pilot will every once in a while use time vault to take two turns in a row. And the whole purpose for that, you'll skip a turn. But the idea is if your opponent is just going draw go, then you can play spells, use all your resources, tap the time vault, take another turn, and replay all your resources. And hopefully on the second turn, something really good is going to resolve. So it's a little bit like. It's a good way of
0: fighting through control if that's all your opponent has.
1: But if your opponent has a time vault in Magic Online, because it reminds them every turn, that they can skip a turn, I think players are more likely to do it. In my experience, players are more likely to skip a turn with Time Vault than they are in real life. And I definitely believe that that reminder, that prompt, contributes to that.
0: Making Time Vault a better card online. Well, I'm not going to say better, but different. (laughs) different. (laughs) Well, okay, that's that's fair. It has other weaknesses online, too. But I guess what I would say is that that line of play is being advertised to controllers of Time Vault's yeah, Where in real life it's much exactly. more subtle and you're much more likely to put a time vault off to the side and forget about it. Not forget about exactly. it, but not consider it every turn. Yeah. Exactly. The, the online interface forces you to consider it.
1: Yeah, and it's like, hey, do you want to do this? Yeah. Hint, hint, nudge, <laughs> nudge.
0: <laughs> well, but that's a very real thing. Let's judges are trained very powerfully that they can't provide strategic advice. And players right. There's a there's a long history of players asking judges questions for lack of a better term incorrectly or asking leading questions of judges that in order to answer them would be strategic advice like should I should I do this any question involves should I you know it's like a strategic question for a judge and so judges will are trained and they frequently say Uh, Can you phrase that in the form of like a a mechanical question? Because that's a strategic question you just asked me. Well, so the Magic Online interface is doing a purely mechanical thing, reminding you of a trigger, but in a way, as you've said, it borders on strategic advice in the case of Time Vault, because it's reminding yes. you of yeah. this ability you have. Ob- yeah. yeah. And so it's not illegal to remind you of a trigger. It's it's yeah. important, but in the real that, world, it's a big difference.
1: And that's different than cards like Mana Drain or Pact of Negation, which people just forget. This is actually considering a decision. Yes. It's prompting
0: a decision. Right. Mana Drain's not a decision. It's not like, do I want this mana? Yeah, you always want the mana. But you're right. Time yeah. Vault is a, is a tactical and ultimately strategic choice, and so yeah. that's a very good point. <laughs>
1: um and, and there's just many things like that i mean certainly the the chalice of the void thing and pyromancer pyromancer people can yeah certainly people can forget pyromancer triggers which you you will you don't do on magic online or even dark confidant flips um there's just lots of things like that um uh, another difference that really does matter is the banter banter can create a sort of you know a psychological environment that mike long is famous for doing you know uh getting in the head but not only is there that is there no human banter but the chat And the the newest version actually is hidden behind the game board by default so it's like what's that by default you mean by default yeah. so you don't actually see it if people talk to you you know you have to actually like you have to make the additional step of looking at it so that's a you know half half the time that i play more than that i, I never look at it and so when i do look at it i notice someone may have said something to me you know so it's like it a lot of the table talk community feeling banter in interaction human interaction is stripped out of the game it's hard to assess what the effect of that is but it has to be it has to be significant. It yeah. can't be. It can't be completely
0: meaningless. No, I, there's no way. It's. I think it is very significant. And I think that there are certain players who might play vintage or other formats, of course, uh, uh, in paper, and who might be getting a significant advantage from the face-to-face presence. And some yeah. of these people might not even know it. Some of them do know it, of course. If you've ever played against Paul Mastriano in vintage, for yes. example, you know yeah. the kind of delicate yeah. intonation and flourish that comes with the way he plays the game that that provokes reactions in people and, and provokes mistakes in certain cases and paul would be at a decided disadvantage in the online interface that way
1: there is no i mean there is only an, a growing amount of social science research that shows the importance of the unconscious mind and mm. the, the, the processes that are below you know of, the, of this of psychology that they come into play in games like this and you know there is no doubt in my mind that the kinds of bluffing, the kinds of comments that can reinforce bluffing, the kinds of things that, in terms of tells or creating tells, you know, there's all kinds of things that people have, quirks, that, that, that you do not get on Magic Online that matter.
0: Um, I, I want to talk specifically about bluffing, because watching Vintage Super League, and I've watched plenty of Magic streaming online for various formats, but... Right. Bluffing is a big one because in person bluffing is a whole world of skills. It is yeah. it's it's all body language, it's controlling yeah. your your face, it's controlling where you look, it's controlling how you manipulate cards, it's yeah. all kinds of things. In online, bluffing is is a whole different skill set. And I, in my opinion, it's much d- diminished <laughs> because <laughs> I, in watching the coverage, yeah. there are times when sim- nothing is happening. A player's clock yeah. is just ticking and it's free- when there's spells on the stack mostly. But a player's yeah. th- there's a triggered ability or a spell on the stack, the clock is ticking and the commentators, Randy and others, have said, uh, looks like so-and-so might have force of will here. Oh. Maybe they've got the mental misstep or maybe they're just wasting time to bluff. And that's all you can do on Magic Online, really. that right. is- Right. That's how you block right. is you just sit there, yeah. There's different cues. <laughs> I mean, that's so the Magic only way, way but online, that's one of the ways.
1: No, that's right. In Magic Online, there are different cues. So, one way you know that your opponent can't do anything is that they've quote F6, and what right. that means is they've just passed it's automatic pass priority for everything in the turn. Typically, what I do is I'll do F2 or F4, which means I'm passing the next phase, yeah. the next step, or F4, which is until I can do something. Um, and you know, so. You can use those different kinds of cues. If an opponent throughout the course of the game is doing F4 or F6, but then all of a sudden, stopping at each step uh uh-huh. tells you that they're probably going to do something on your end step or in your draw step which is a different you know different sort of bluff or a different tactical tell but i mean there's no doubt that in real life that there are all different Did people try and read other people mm-hmm. i you know i in in the top four of the vintage championship in 2011 i compl- i misread paul and i made the wrong play and i lost the top four I didn't think he had force. I could have played Fendillion Click and Pyro Blast to suck up the damage and then, you know, to suck up the block from a, a blightstone colossus and, and probably win the next turn but i didn't mm. i just went to the win and he had force so and there's no also no doubt that people can prod your opponent into doing other things in real life for example you can sort of like say are you done or you can get people to speed up and yeah. slow down there's all kinds of things that you can do in real life <laughs> you, can't, you can't do a magic online
0: uh, I, the classic example is let me know when i have priority <laughs> i love yeah. i love that one Um, I I would say I didn't mean to wholly diminish the uh, ability to bluff online. I just mean that it's a whole different skill set. And I would caution new players, especially if you're playing control cards, force of wills, that kind of thing, that... For lack of a better term, what Steve just described is there is a a form of body language to the online interface. If, If when you announce a spell, priority is immediately passed back to you over and over again, and you see someone has F6, they're making liberal use of F4... But then one particular turn, there's extra pauses. And that's a form of body language online. Yeah. And it behooves and and it behooves yeah. you to learn that kind of body language of what you're projecting by your use of the interface. That's
1: right. And there's different and those that can be used in different kinds of ways.
0: And you can um, and you can use it to bluff too. If you're in, right. if you're doing liberal F four use throughout the game and you just stop and wait one turn, well, it's a tell of one kind, but it could be a bluff too if you're good at it. That's right. And you know how to misdirect someone, uh, pun intended.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, these, these things definitely matter. Um, I also think that different cards become used differently in Magic Online. Um, I, there are a lot of examples, but one example is Flusterstorm. Oh, yeah. Flusterstorm. Man. <laughs> It impacts the game because of the clock, but also because you actually... So first of all, it gives you a prompt. I, I, I can't tell you, Kevin, how many times I've seen people mess up Blaster Storm in real life in one games they should have won. Yeah. Because yeah. the opponent tricked them. Yeah. You know, into saying, are you going to, you know, uh, something like, you know... So are the bluster storm targets going here or something like yeah, that? Yeah, you
0: can pro- you can provoke a, a mis targeting just by asking yeah. in the wrong way. Not the wrong way, but asking in a suggestive way.
1: Yeah, and that's <laughs> much harder too because you have to literally target every copy. Yeah, and then and then also it allows it reminds you you can pay one for this for every single copy. <laughs> um,
0: Which is another but- variant of the strategic reminder thing. There, I, right. I I know there are situations in paper magic where people have had the capacity to pay for fluster storms and just didn't because they right. there's a there's yeah. a mental shortcut with fluster storm that's to your advantage if you're the caster sometimes but also if you're on the receiving end of it there's this mental shortcut of okay fluster storm just stops all this which is certainly not the case right
1: but but also in a time pressured environment fluster storm on magic online can take like, you know, 20, 30, <laughs> yeah, up to a minute to actually resolve. Especially if one opponent has, like, Fluster Storm for seven and you're playing Fluster Storm for eight. And then you have to figure out how to distribute every single one of those yeah. and watch your opponent then figure out which ones they're going to pay for and which not. And it's it takes it, it's a very different
0: card. Um, it's like a sub game. <laughs> it's like I'm going to cash airs out of this stack. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, and, and cards like Necropotence also take more time. But, you know, I'm not sure. I, I do think that um, the, the, all the things we talked about do make the game in some ways fundamentally different, in some ways different that, that, that um, cancel each other out. So you know, it's not clear what direction a lot of these things cut, but there are some salient differences that have clear strategic implications, not just that. And I want to shift to those now. Um, let's start with I think what I think is probably the most important, which is the no slow play, play rule. <laughs> um, you know, the fact of having a chess clock means that they don't have to have a slow play rule because there is actual meaningful time pressure. No one complains, Kevin. If if um, you know, no, no no opponent that I've seen yet. Complains when someone loses when their opponent loses the game by running out of time. You know, it's yeah. they they they're happy with that, right? I mean, you get your tickets, you move on. My opponent lost, they lost.
0: It, they don't don't care how. It's viewed as a skill. It's viewed as you failed to achieve your goals right. just patently.
1: So the slow play rule, there is no, slow play is a very important rule in real life magic because it preserves the capacity to play, you know, the games in an allotted time. But there's no need for that in magic online. So there is no slow play. Rule. You can take virtually as long as you want. <laughs> it will enforce it maybe like after, I don't know, some number of time, you're not doing anything. It assumes you're not there at all. So it asks you to take an action or it'll, you'll concede the game. But basically, this is such a huge difference between real life magic and magic online it really deserves spending a lot of time on why this is such a good thing. And I think it's a big difference for a number of reasons, but I think it's especially a big difference for cards that are naturally and strategically complicated, like Gifts Ungiven, Doomsday, and Necropos. Cards whose activation and resolution take a, can, can take up a lot of time, and in real life Magic, you have the same amount of time to resolve a Doomsday as you do to resolve a Demonic Tutor, mm-hmm. but that's you know um, not the case on Magic Online. You can take six. Ten minutes, if you want, to resolve Doomsday,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which is enormously important because it gives you the time to think through so many different piles that you wouldn't normally have time to think through. I think it really makes Necropotence, Doomsday, and Gibson given all much better.
0: And Doomsday, I mean, it's obviously the poster child for this situation, the logical extreme, basically, but. Right. It brings up a really interesting, and this is not strategic, but a really interesting philosophical debate about what Magic is, of course. But if if your deck is titled Doomsday, and the goal of said deck is to cast Doomsday and use that very proximately to winning the game, basically. You know, it's the fulcrum, and the Doomsday deck in Vintage is the sort of deck that can go, it can can tread water for quite a while. You might not cast Doomsday until turn five, six, seven, eight, depending on the game state. And, right. But then, but then it's like hitting a wall. It's 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 yeah. like a logarithmic scale. As soon as Doomsday resolves, games do not go long. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they they asymptote down to this game's about to end. And so yeah, right. uh, and you
1: can spend all yeah you can spend all your time on the Doomsday.
0: That's what I'm getting at is is not to yeah. diminish the importance of individual counter spells and jockeying all the way up okay. to that point, but the importance of that Doomsday overshadows most of the choices in that game before or after the importance of resolving that spell.
1: I- I don't want to overstate or understate the difference, but it here here's the issue. Suppose suppose this is the case. Suppose that eighty percent of what you can do on magic online with the time, you can do in real life, real life magic. So eighty percent of the piles that you could come up with or thinking that you can come up with, you can do quickly within the, the reasonable time allotted before you get slow play call. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's just assume that's the case. That's a reasonable assumption, um, I think. That's still twenty percent difference. Yeah. Even if it's 90%, that's still 10% difference. That 10% difference can mean the difference between winning and losing. A tournament. A tournament, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So the, the simple fact of the matter is that Doomsday, and, and this is just the first way in which these cards are better. I mean, necropotence, you have so many considerations to think of. Let's say you necropotence, you resolve turn one necropotence, you up your hand, and you necropotence for 11 cards. In real life magic, you just have to begin basically chucking card and deciding what you're going to keep. But you can actually sit there and consider... What are what's my plan? What lines of play do I wish to pursue? What do I think my opponent might have? How do I select the line of play that's best the strongest? What's my backup plan? What's my plan next turn? You can do all these things that you 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 cannot sort of calculate in a forward thinking way in real life. You have to you, know, you sort of have to do much more quickly. Um you can even you know so you can even do this this gets to some of the other differences. I want to move out of the slow play difference. <laughs> for a second but but think about this you can actually have a calculator and do all kinds of mathematical calculations you can run i'm i i I can't wait for the day when magic players have programs that can be been calculating probability set up on their computer when they're playing magic online to do probability calculations
0: like that's like in poker
1: Right. Right. Imagine
0: that. Yeah, I mean, in poker, when you know all the variables, uh, meaning cards in hand, you can put that uh, percentage clock of percent to win, which they do in the World Series of Poker. And and that's a a standard for uh, poker coverage on television these days. But but that kind of thing, obviously, it won't apply directly to Magic because you can't do all those possible calculations. But to your point, Steve, you could input, if you're building a doomsday pile, you could input... Which of these pals is better given that this one beats double force of will and this one yeah. beats force plus fluster storm and this one beats fluster storm plus misstep? Yeah. What you are the percentages the that they might have those three exactly? Yeah,
1: you can do those probabilities. I would love if any of our listeners are professional poker players or whatever and, and play poker online in real life, I'd, I'd love to know the differences. I mean, you don't you can't sort of calculate at the poker table the percentages, but you can do it on online. Yeah, so uh, I'd love to know sort of how that. This this gets to this the second point which is that I want to make here which is that you can use outside resources. It's a little bit like taking you know I don't know if in in college or higher ed or or in my case law school is certainly the case. There were some exams that were open book and there were some <laughs> exams that were closed book. Yeah. And the and, and the difference is enormous. I mean. open book you can bring you can look at any case you've ever read all your notes and to some extent that can be overwhelming but if you've done a good job tailoring your notes into a usable outline it can be enormously valuable so in the case of Doomsday, I am able to consult my own guidebooks that have pre-designed Doomsday piles for d- for different scenarios. E. Midland has his whole spreadsheet of Doomsday piles for Legacy Doomsday that he could consult online. That imagine if you walked into a tournament, you sat down round one, and you had a a, a pile a stack of of notebooks in front of you, <laughs> and said, "Hold on, let me consult my notebook, page 562." That's essentially you can. You can have a library of Congress with the materials in front of you on your computer because you have access to the internet. and I mean, it's just there's no way that we can say that those are the same thing in that sense. You could. Here's another example. Your opponent plays two cards. You can search online databases to see what deck they might be. Playing. Yeah. You can narrow it down without having to use your knowledge. You can actually do, you know, OK, they're playing Dredge and they've got this card main deck. Let me see the online dailies. Which dredge decks have those cards main deck, and what these probably got in the sideboard? Yeah, yep. That's huge. <laughs> I mean, that's the outside sources prohibition you can't use in real life Magic. There's a rule against consulting outside sources.
0: And, that's outside help. And there's and there's another huge aspect to this whole thing which you haven't mentioned yet that falls under the heading of using outside sources, which is having another player next to you. <laughs> right and we know this happens all the time and it's broadly yeah. advertised and even celebrated yeah. among pros who are saying this room full of hall of famers is 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 playing one account for a, a draft right now online and we yeah. look at that and that's normative but when you think about what yeah. that does to the integrity of the game it's actually borderline offensive in my opinion it's well, obviously yeah, I mean, impossible to enforce the the, the inverse, but yeah. it really is pretty counterproductive to saying I'm playing a game of magic against this person.
1: <laughs> if I was right, if I was playing in the Vintage Championships online, yeah. and I'm in the finals, yeah. and I mean, I have to make a decision, I can call I can put you, Brian DeMars and Paul Mastriano on speakerphone. <laughs>
0: That's right. And we
1: we could brainstorm and we can all peruse brand. your
0: spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, uh, we don't we're bordering on complaining here i, I don't want no, no, to uh, but this, this is, is i not believe not this is a a humongous difference which is obviously I mean, not news is, to people who've been playing non-vintage online for years
1: just to be 100 percent clear this is not griping this is not complaining this is observing difference yeah i don't
0: think there's anything there's
1: nothing inherently or morally wrong about what we're talking about. it's i mean there's no way to control it there's no mechanism for you know preventing outside help just inherent and, and, and the, yeah. it's inherent and the time clock keeps that in check some to some extent. But it it, it it means more work for you to prepare those outside sources so they're useful. Just like when you have an open book test, if it's an hour and a half, you can't, you know, peruse your your case book looking for the information. You didn't know where it is.
0: Yeah. And so, this comes to my last Go ahead. So what we're highlighting here though is this interface rewards different skills. That's right. There are in, different in, skills different depending on your deck, depending on the archetype, depending on your preparation, there are different skills being tested online than in print. Your
1: capacity to go through magic deck list databases is more is, is not valued at all in real life magic. <laughs> well, I mean but, but
0: prior to the tournament it is, but not yeah, in real time. Not in real time. Yeah.
1: But it's incredibly valuable and your capacity to um you know organized notes in in a useful way you know is is in especially you know thick voluminous notes
0: sideboarding sideboarding plans you, you can you can prepare sideboard i mean i don't recommend this but you can you can prepare sideboarding a lot less online if you have a, a reference to pull from if someone has written a primer on here's how you sideboard with this deck you don't have to memorize the things you can just say if you understand the why's you can just push that off to the side and say, I'm going to refer to this during the tournament. Here it is. You don't have to commit all the sideboard plans to memory.
1: And this, this gets to my last point in this, this vein. So, you know, I think is strategically different. So we talked about the no slow slow play rule, the no outside help rule. (laughs) Um, But you can also develop a set of notes. So when you have to think through a decision in magic, in real life magic, all you have is a piece of paper (laughs) and a pen or a pencil in your head. That's like living in the Stone Age Mm -hmm. for what you can have. (laughs) You know, you might as well be, you know. Hitting your opponent with rocks? But, yes, because <laughs> they must be throwing a spear to catch a fish. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculously antiquated. I mean, with, with Magic Online, I can, you know, like we said, you can run calculations. But more importantly, I can open up a Word document. I can type a narrative that allows me to walk through each step of what I'm going to do. And not only does it matter because I'm, you know you can type faster than you can write, you can do calculations of computers faster than you can do them with your hand, by hand, but it also means that your opponent doesn't get to see any of that. When you're doing that in real life, it reveals tremendous
0: information. Oh, that's a good point, too.
1: So if I'm writing a doomsday pile down, and let's say I haven't even cast Doomsday. All I've done is play Dark Ritual. No, no, not even Dark Ritual. Let's say all I've done is play Underground Sea. <laughs> <laughs> and I begin, you know, writing down Doomsday piles of five cards. My opponent's going to be able to figure out what the heck I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I don't want them to know I'm on Doomsday yet.
0: Well, yet- and there's a very real example of that happened in week one of the Vintage Super League where you had multiple fetch lands in play. But... Even the commentators didn't know what you were playing yet, and your opponent certainly didn't. And so, but that's a very <laughs> good point, though, is if it's their end step and you're thinking they've passed with certain plays, certain av- mana available, cards in hand, can I win from here? Yeah. So you need yeah. to start making the piles exactly. of cho- choices before you can yeah. fetch an underground sea out. You could be playing exactly. any, any blue deck right now, yeah. and that yeah. would give away huge things in real life to be taking that time and analyzing visually that way.
1: And the same is true for gifts piles. Mm-hmm. You can do all that before. You can figure out your gift pile before you've even given them a clue of what you're playing. Yeah. And and um, so simple part, things
0: that many decks do, like looking at your sideboard, right?
1: Yeah. Yep. So I, I, all these things, I, I think... Have strategic implications. Take able to take notes, and not have your opponent also look at them. I, I believe the the full rules state that if you take notes, your opponent basically you can't hide them from your opponent. Right. <laughs> you can I can't be taking secret notes. Right. Um, the outside help, the slow play rule, all all in to the benefit of cards like Doomsday. And so I think the bottom line is that cards like Doomsday are far, far, far more powerful in Magic Online than and in the Vintage Super. That's that's a big reason I played in the Vintage Super League. I think Vintage. I think Doomsday in both Legacy and Vintage is far more powerful than it could ever be in real life. And it's not for one reason. It's not just because of the slow play rule. It's not just because of the notes. It's not just because of outside help. It's all of these things together that interact, that that, that that bolster Doomsday as a as a card. And Doomsday is, as you said, is the most extreme example. Mm-hmm. There are other cards that, that benefit as well, like Gifts Ungiven, Necropotence, other decision decision intensive cards. So, with that said, I I think that it it in some ways is functionally. I don't want to say a different game, but but a different kind of game, a different form of magic. And, you know, if, if you're skeptical of that claim, I think you can imagine how, you know, we just articulated three different rule, four rules differences between magic online, not to mention we actually more, but just in the context of Doomsday, those three, you know, think about the difference between football without the forward pass and with the forward pass, it's the same game kind of, (laughs) but there are huge strategic differences, right? In terms of your options, in terms of, you know, your, you know, um, the availability of plays in terms of what a defense can do in terms of what, how you align your, your formations or, or basketball with the the three point uh, shot or a shot clock, You know, the the game of basketball without the three-point is different, just different, not better or worse, Mm -hmm. maybe, but different. (laughs) Um, You know, I I probably think football fans probably prefer having the forward pass. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, imagine just just something very simple. Imagine chess without castling, right? Just without castling. Very simple rule difference. Just there you can't castle. You know, it doesn't mean that the game is entirely different, but it is different.
0: Yeah. One of my and favorite those... one of my favorite records is the lowest scoring game in NBA history. <laughs> Not, November twenty second, nineteen fifty, the Fort Wayne Pistons beat the <laughs> Minneapolis Lakers. Think about those two cities and team names for a second. The Fort Wayne Pistons <laughs> beat the Minneapolis Lakers nineteen to eighteen. And that was before there was a shot clock, because the strategy in that game was to win the tip, get the first basket, and then play keep away from your opponent. And defense was all about steals, not about blocking shots or anything. It was all about steals, because as soon as you got the ball, then you had the opportunity to score, and whoever had the lead was just trying to play keep away, which sounds ludicrous, obviously, by today's standards. But I don't think it's that far removed from the examples you're giving about... This, the technical goals of a game in a deck like Doomsday, where your goal in real life is to amass all this information beforehand and be quick about it. Right. Whereas right. you can you can play toward different timing goals. Throughout amass, the course amass, of match. And
1: master, amass and master it. Yes. You have to master it. And you can never totally master right. it. Right. acquire some level of expertise. Keep going. I just
0: Versus- think I just think that pulls up the perfect example of how you sculpt the the pace of a game. So right. in, in real life Doomsday deck, you, your, turns, <laughs> your turns are much more uniform in their duration because of the slow play rules. You've got right. a turn that involves a, a shuffle and a brainstorm and a, a top activation is going to take a certain amount of time. But you can't take very much more than that amount of time. And so the turn that when Doomsday comes up is going to take about the same amount of time as that brainstorm turn earlier in yeah. real life. Because you have to be the same uniform amount of speed choice to choice. But on a Magic Online, you can take a whole bunch of time on that brainstorm if you want, and then a bunch of clicks, a bunch of shuffling that takes no time. This takes no time. This takes, and then the doomsday turn comes, and yeah. the 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 so- weight that you're giving that turn is. Much more akin to its importance on the game and the match online. Just
1: to, just to mathematize this, you have 25, 25 minutes per match. Yeah, you could literally spend ten minutes on a Doomsday in both games that you win the game. Exactly, the and just five minutes, just you know, very quickly going through everything else that doesn't matter. Um, and 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 um, you know, it it not only impacts you know your ability to think through or execute more precisely, but I think it may. Also, you know, the fact that there's time pressure may affect your decision in real life magic about whether to even play Doom <laughs> Because sure. you, on the moment you're casting it, there's, it, you you may be 50-50. You may say, "Well, I could play it here and probably win, but if I wait one more turn, I can probably, I have a good chance of getting a stronger position." This, e- or just this a-
0: easier pile that I'm more familiar with is better positioned yeah. next turn. Yeah. Yes, than the uncertain pile I would have to build right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. absolutely.
1: And, and and that's not an issue you have to worry about on Magic Online. Yeah, exactly. So so I came to the conclusion that I thought Doomsday. It took me actually some time before I sort of had to think through these differences and what these differences meant in terms of strategy and implication. But eventually I came to the conclusion that unless I was testing for real-life magic, I just want to be playing Doomsday on Magic on <laughs> Um, you know, it's just so much better than in real life. And I think it's a huge margin. I don't think it's 20% better. I think it's closer to 50% better.
0: Yeah. I, I also find it interesting how this debate, and we don't need to go through the whole thing, bears on the old shock, uh, Sorry, chess clock debate right. for for paper magic. There are, there are many, numerous debates across magic fora throughout history as to the the pros and cons of of uh, chess clocks. And ultimately it comes down to uh, the word I'm looking for the inviability because of cost and logistics. But the simple yeah. truth is, is there are some benefits to them. There are some things that they do better in the game. Yeah. And the slow play thing is one of them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it, it would be very difficult to implement just because of the number of times that in real life magic, because the number of times priorities passed each, each turn. Oh, absolutely. And that's why we don't do it. And one of the reasons. Yeah. yeah. Not just, but the, the, um, I also think that what, and I'm going on on a limb here, but here's what I here's what I think, here's why I suspect. I think that because magic has evolved on in, in paper form, and it's still predominantly a paper game. I don't think there's I don't I think that the, my suspicion is that the paper game still dwarfs the online game. <laughs> yeah. Um. I think that the norms of the game, that is sort of the ways in which players. Play it, and the skills that are rewarded, and the kinds of player that have been sort of risen to the top in the game, are a function in part of the the reality of of the way the game works online. That is to say that I think certain kind of cognitive styles, ability quick to very to think very quickly, not not sort of linger in a you know deliberative way, but but to sort of intuitively you know a lot of practice, a lot of play experience that develops into sort of I think almost unconscious processes. Sort of this is kanima. Kind of Thinking fast and slow, Daniel Kahneman. Um, you know that is able to execute gameplay quickly, assess risks and benefits quickly, but not necessarily to the full extent of consciously deliberating, deliberating, forward thinking, mm-hmm. but more of that split-second, quick subconscious process. So I think that what I'm saying is that I think that the, the player type that has been rewarded by real-life magic may, and the kinds of styles of play, both cognitive and the general norms of play, may be differently rewarded on Magic Online, mm-hmm. and that Magic Online may reward a different kind of player who, who, who it doesn't feel the pressure to play as quickly as they have developed in real life. Um, I like to sort of suit myself to both of those. So, you know, when I'm playing in real-life magic, I generally don't play Doomsday, so I <laughs> take a lot of time i i play you know decks that i can play very quickly or if i play doomsday i just have to play with the reality of having to play quickly yeah Uh, but i i I suspect that what i'm saying is there may be some structural features that um, may be less visible but that magic on up to the game and the kinds of you know inherent abilities it rewards that magic online may actually help uh, reveal unmask or illuminate for us
0: i think you're absolutely right I think we should finish by talking about some very real world results for you in the Vintage Super League and your experience with playing Doomsday in exactly the scenario that we've been outlining. So you put your money where your mouth is in the Vintage Super League, and you yeah. cho- chose Doomsday, much to the delight and surprise of many. And yeah, my
1: favorite my favorite part of the entire thing is when I cast Doomsday, and Randy Mueller's eyes
0: <laughs> like. Yeah, if, if you guys aren't familiar yet with the Vintage Super League, go watch the coverage on YouTube of or the twitch archives of yeah steve's first round first game first round of the vintage super league because it was quite awesome to watch the commentators speculate on what he might be playing and then suddenly the the card doomsday comes up on the stack and and the whole world opened up the the clouds parted it was it was an interesting moment for for online magic coverage among other things so anyway, you are we're, we're currently after week three, right? You're 3-0 yep. right now with Doomsday. And we're in that interesting tournament feature that we've discussed right now where people have the option to change decks right now. So what can you tell people about what has happened so far and where things are going from here?
1: Let's begin with the metagame. The metagame is three Merfolk decks, <laughs> uh, which is the most prevalent deck. Randy Bueller, David Williams, and Ephro both decide to play Merfolk. I played Dave Williams and Ephro. Um, Rich Shea played his control slaver deck. I played Doomsday. Um, Tom Martell played a Ramora Gush deck um, that is pretty controlling, I'd say. It doesn't look like it has. It's got a uh, a combo finish though with Regrowth and Gush Bond Engine. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really does reflect his his all in. I think Tom Martell came in the format. He made some controversial comments saying that he he didn't didn't think that Delver or he suspected that Delver and but especially not Deathrite Shaman were vintage playable. Yeah.
0: Um, And doesn't Tom have Key Vault in his gush deck? Or is that the other uh, Gush deck? No, no he doesn't. Yeah. I thought, one, I thought of- one of the combo decks had Key Vault in it, which was unusual.
1: So Yeah, so there are three Merfolk. Raptor. There are a couple Gush decks. Um, yeah, so um, there's there's uh, Raptor. Josh Utterlayton played a combo deck that looks very similar to my Burning Tendrils, but without Oath of Druids. Mm-hmm. Chris McCool was the only person to play Workshops. He's playing Terra Nova, and he's 3-0. and o. I play him next week. Um, Bob Marr played Oath. Oath of Druids, a typical control Oath of Druids. And... Um, lastly, uh, LSV played a Gush deck <clears throat> with uh, I think you would probably call this Pyromancer Gush. He has a he has an Empty the Warrens and, yep. and and some uh, young Pyromancers. Um, it, it it reminds me somewhat of the Grow deck I was playing last year with, with except he doesn't have Regrowth. He's got Snapcaster Mage. Um, but um, yeah, so the metagame is I guess you could say three Gush decks is one way of looking at it, including my deck, Control Slaver, <laughs> three Merfolk, Workshop, and a combo deck. That you know, a dedicated storm combo deck. Um, I think that uh, it it seems right that probably just one person played workshops, but they're also three and zero. So I think we're gonna see more workshops in the next the next set of bat the next batch of of, uh, of uh, matches.
0: So after week three, there's only two undefeated players, you and Chris Pecula on Terra Nova. Right. And um. And will you remind everyone what the tournament format actually is? Modified round robin.
1: Right. So, the, yeah, the tournament is modified round robin. Chris and I are three and zero. Rich Shea, Efro, LSV, and Randy Bueller are two and one. Dave Williams is one and two, and Bob, Marr, Josh Ardelayton, and Tom Martell are both o three. And, and again, the goal is not to get last place. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, I've, hopefully, I've avoided that that fate. Um, <laughs> But I do have a difficult decision to go into. So my round four matchup is going to be Chris Pacula. My round five matchup is Rich Shea. And my round six matchup is LSV.
0: All people Although with winning like, records.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I think that... Um, I think Rich Shea is going to continue to play Control Slaver. Um, I think LSV is probably going to stick to a blue deck. I don't know which one. But, you know, there's always a risk he could play something else. And I, it's hard to imagine... The more I think about it, it's hard to imagine Chris switching out of, out of shops... Especially, here's why: because if he thinks there's a good chance, I'm gonna this won't be live by the time no. the next match is played. But if there's a chance that he thinks I'll play Doomsday still, and he probably, I mean, why wouldn't he think I'm gonna continue to play Doomsday? Why would he switch out of anything else? <laughs> uh, his yeah. deck is so yeah. well positioned against Doomsday, and it's hard to imagine his deck is that poorly positioned against Rich Shea's deck either. Yeah, um, with Null Rod, so I have a tough decision to make on what I think is you know going to be the best deck. For those three matchups.
0: And then after the next three rounds, how is the winner determined? Um, because there still could be ties at that point in terms of game wins, or ma- yeah, match wins.
1: The top four players are playing in the top four playoff. Right? Okay, there you go. In week 10.
0: And you don't get to change decks before the top four? No, you do, actually. You oh, really? Oh, yeah. oh, well, that's interesting. That's very interesting. I didn't realize yes. that aspect, so okay, okay. So the coverage has been interesting. They've been uh, Randy has been taking the, the primary commentary, I'm sorry, commentary seat when he's not playing, and then he's been rotating in uh, one of the other players that's that's not playing into the second commentary seat for each match. So there's a diversity of commentators in the coverage. And if you haven't been watching it, the coverage is all out there in the Twitch history, and there's a YouTube channel as well, which we'll link to. And on Tuesday nights, they've been playing all the matches where possible. Did all the matches get in this past Tuesday? Steve? Yes. Okay, so yeah. they haven't missed a match or a, a night yet. Uh so the coverage has been really interesting. Uh, in my opinion, there the the breadth of magic experience in the coverage commentator is obviously huge. We got a bunch of vintage experts, hall of famers, pro tour winners, uh, just a really high quality yeah. player. At the same time, there's some exploration of the vintage format still going on for some of these players. Yeah. many of the players in this group are have been playing Vintage a long time. Right. Some of them not frequently, but most right. of them are old-school Vintage players. Right. And there's a reason they're in this group. But it's really interesting because there's just some inherent things about familiarity with the format that have come to bear in the commentary. The, the very first game for Chris Pecula versus Tom Martell was an interesting tell in terms of commentary because uh, Pecula was, is on Terra Nova. Martell's on his Gush combo deck. Game one, the only card (laughs) that Chris plays in game one is Mishra's Factory. (laughs) Because what happened was Tom started to go off on... uh, Chris missed a land drop, I think. Tom started to go off on turn two or three, and Tom announced Thoughtseize on Chris, and Chris scooped in response. So (laughs) all that that Tom or the commentators have seen of Chris's deck is Mishra's Factory. And it was a really interesting uh, microcosm of understanding of the format and commentary and such because the commentary team seemed unanimous that the only thing chris could be playing is workshops they're like the only deck that plays mish's workshop in this format i'm sorry Mistress factory in this format is workshop so he's on workshops right well so the commentary team didn't observe the possibility that chris could be playing land still which is not very common online give granted But it's certainly a Mishra's Factory deck. And the sort of deck that would keep a hand that only had Mishra's Factory and deem that a playable hand, right? So apparently, (laughs) it appears that Martell actually sideboarded for Landstill. (laughs) because he kept a hand that had no lands in all accelerants in game two he like he kept a no land all mox hand for game two in his combo deck which you would never keep with no force of will either which you would never keep against terra nova that is just a death knell against terra nova what with the chalice and the null rods and such they could and the the spheres they can totally almost all their cards cut you out of that game and sure enough uh pecula basically won that game on turn one by playing some lock component, I don't remember which, because Tom just discarded on his first turn. And so it appears that the commentary team and Tom read completely opposite directions for Chris's Game 1 Mishra's Factory hand. And that's just an interesting microcosm of what it's like to try and interpret vintage decks based on the early turns uh, card selection and such. And the same thing happened, as we already said, with you, because Game 1 for you went with no non-islands fetched for for what looked like a long time, although it was only like turn three or four. But but that's the kind of thing that experience with the format really demonstrates. And uh, I do not wish to belittle uh, Hall of Famers at all, but there's certainly some aspects of format familiarity that are at play here. And... I, th- yeah. I think that the commentary is improving by leaps and bounds as yeah. as individual games yeah. progress throughout this vintage super league. Yeah. So that I think it's getting a lot better week over week.
1: Yeah, and, and commentary isn't bad because people are mistaken about the format. No, that doesn't you're make right. Com- commentary isn't. But it's it's it just is what it is. And it, the question is, is what commentary interesting? Does it, it enliven it, and enrich? Yeah, pitch?
0: it definitely yeah. is. And obviously, these pro these pro Hall of Famer players are quite good at talking about lines and tells and reading players uh, interactions with each other while observing the game state yeah which is which is part of the real value of commentary and they're doing a great job about it
1: right i think though i think i think that it's, i think it was really important that Rich and i did well in this first batch because the the advantage that we have over the other players, just like the commentary is improved by leaps and bounds, I have no de- doubt that the decks that are selected <laughs> by these pros will improve by leaps and bounds in the next round. So, you know, it, you know, one of the they there have been some interesting storylines in this whole thing that Randy's sort of played up in the preview show. You know, one of the storylines is sort of how the Hall of Famers do against each other. You know, like you know, because there's we have more than just you know two Hall of Famers here. I think there are maybe three on this, this thing. But the other storyline that he really played up and, you know, was how will the vintage experts do against the, you know, more general magic experts. It's interesting. It's always interesting to describe, you know, these these players as magic professionals because, you know, uh, I don't know what that term means. But I know that, (laughs) you know, in a sense, you know, you could call me a magic professional. I don't know what that means exactly. You know, like probably written a lot you know just as much as many of these players um certainly you know whatever you know <laughs> lifetime earning i haven't won money on pro tours but i've you know certainly earned a lot of black lotuses and moxin in my time and certainly you know whatever but um definitely i, I do think, i do think that the um the uh the question is sort of you know who 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 will perform well i i ex- i'm happy that rich and i were able to represent the vintage community well so far um and but i think that their performance will both tighten up in terms of play and in terms of deck selection it's interesting though if you go back and watch my matches there i, I do think that i'm i'm especially proud of how i played because i think that all the questionable plays have not been mine <laughs> you know i think there's a play that josh there's a play that josh made that maybe he could have won the one one of the games against me and, and certainly Epro's decision to pitch curse catcher has gotten a lot of criticism although i think unjustifiably I think there are a number of mitigating factors there yeah. um but uh the, the point remains that it's not been my play that's been scrutinized it's been uh, but but anyway I think that um I think that the, the, the uh, players themselves will have a much better handle in the next three weeks and the, the three weeks after that over the metagame and what's good and what's not. I, I do think that there is a, a, you know, when you're a very good Magic player, there's a tendency to come into any format and ha- with a little bit of hubris and a tendency to make some claims that might be uh, a little bit extreme and maybe overbroad. And so there's a, a you know a tendency I think to pull back on some of that um, as you sort of actually navigate the format more directly. Um, so I think it, I think this is a really great thing. But more broadly, I think what's amazing about this is that it's really cool that this whole concept of a of a magic online league that that Randy has constructed, essentially a functional invitational begins with vintage. This is a model that could be replicated outside of vintage and probably should be. You know, this whole, let's make it a show. You know, I'm, you know, creating this thing and you can you can build it up and have all kinds of incredible sponsorships, financial, you know, in, in involvement and support. Um, you know, hopefully this is a model for people doing to do all sorts of similar things like this.
0: Yeah, Randy's done a bang-up job promoting this thing and getting the participants. It is only a good thing for Magic Online and for Vintage. And right. and the various idiosyncrasies of players and decks and play and commentary all, uh, in my opinion, this whole thing could not be better. Yeah, <laughs> It has interesting choices, it has debates, it has strategy, it has play, it has uh, personalities it has just a little bit of everything it has narratives and yeah I mean, it, it, there's nothing more you could want from an event like this top level players and and good games and good results i think this thing really does kind of set the stage this is the model for this kind of ind- independently promoted Magic yeah. Online event. And I'm which, com- which, it's which, awesome that it's vintage.
1: Yeah, this underscores, I think, the, the untapped potential of Magic Online. Because you couldn't do this in real life. You'd yeah. have to sort of, you know, Magic Invitational is an expensive thing to do. So you'd have this to have millions
0: something. of dollars in camera crews and junk. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, at least, let's just say at least $50,000. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I, I was,
0: yeah, I mean, mine was going to be held in Buenos Aires, but. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be in Moscow. No.
1: No, I, I, yeah, I, I think this is an amazing model. And there, there's, you know, a lot of people complain about magic online. And some of that is justified. But I, I, I don't want to, this is not the time for that. I think as I learn the platform, as I learn the thing, there's a lot of things that could be improved. And I think that at some point it'll be worthwhile you know, writing something up on compiling what could be done. But this is something that can be spun off of Magic Online that you just can't do in real life. And it really could not have happened without Magic Online. So Vintage on Magic Online, I think, has opened more doors than we thought even possible.
0: And I bet that we have a lot of listeners who are, they're not playing Magic Online yet, Vintage, or Magic Online, any format. Or maybe they are a little bit, and they're still looking for more resources or more things uh, to, to see about the metagame, about the play. This Vintage Super League is just a great advertisement for the format, too. All, yeah, the, all the things about it are just great advertisement for the format. Also, the interface and the platform. I mean, the coverage team is, they're covering strategic elements of the platform, as well as the decks and the games and the gameplay, just like we've touched on here. your The issues you brought up with regard to Doomsday were definitely highlighted in the first game of the first week, and it hasn't stopped since then, you know, the, the commentary about the advantages that Doomsday has because of the platform and just as a deck for this environment. It's a little bit of everything for the format. If our listeners are not yet attuned to good sources for decks or people to watch or streamers or if they're missing anything, this is a good foothold into an exposure to Vintage Online. So. I would I would uh, encourage anyone to go watch.
1: Yeah, I mean, hopefully it's an entertaining show. That's the bottom line. Yep. I think it has, it. and I, I think you know some of the, I think frankly, a lot of the games in week three were blowouts. The mine was very interesting. So I I hope that uh, I think the games will become considerably tighter over time. Just the commentary improves, just as the the players get a, a better grasp. Uh, grasp of the format and its its nuances but i think that what that means is that the games themselves will also improve so by week nine i'm thinking that four out of those five matches are going to be great yeah. and highly entertaining television yeah. And it's just great that you can know people can come home from work and watch a, a great television product
0: you know? yeah i agree i especially would like to draw people's attention to to rich shay's matches because he has had some epic long uh rewarding finishes to games and just some he's had there's, some real resiliency I, with long games for his his deck to come to, to give them the tools he needs but he he plays correctly into the winning scenarios in a couple of cases it's really awesome I,
1: I think my favorite match that i've watched so far and i haven't i have to concede i haven't watched all of them but my favorite match is rich Shea's match against tom martell yeah it was just hilarious oh there's so Thighly many interesting enter- things there highly entertaining incredibly amusing <laughs>
0: yeah it was really awesome and to watch his deck win in some very uh unplanned not unplanned what's the word i'm looking for unusual just you wouldn't have drawn it up this way unorthodox victories (laughs) and uh, yeah some very interesting stuff and your deck definitely is is doing what it should do doing what it's designed to do but from from an outsider's perspective your deck might look surprising i would say but So I think it's a good watch to watch your first three weeks of matches and probably your next three for those reasons. But for an insider's perspective, someone who's played Doomsday even, watching your deck perform and knowing it's just it's really interesting from a spectator standpoint depending on your level of experience with the deck because sometimes it looks like oh i don't know how steve's gonna pull this one out and then an experienced <laughs> doomsday player might be looking at it and saying he's playing right into steve's hands <laughs> that's how i was thinking i was thinking watch man steve can't lose this game
1: <laughs> yeah. no it's it's i think it's yeah it's designed, it's designed to be a crowd favorite
0: yeah day. it's really great to watch it's really funny well, at any rate, Steve, this has been a really interesting episode. I'd like to know from our audience, our question of the week is, how do you think that Vintage on Magic Online has changed the format, the Vintage format? And I'm, that's intentionally open-ended because we want to hear people's thoughts. We've touched on a whole range of things here this episode, but there's, there's much more. There's just much, much more. Gotcha. And yeah, and there's going to continue to be throughout hopefully the long life of online and print vintage, <laughs> there's going to continue to be these parallel diversity. The formats are going to continue to influence each other, of course, but the difference in platforms is going to, it's never going to merge entirely. And so we're just going to keep following both online and paper vintage, and hopefully for quite a long time to come. With that, thank you for listening to episode 38 of So Many Insane Plays. Again, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at SoManyInsanePlaysPodcast Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.
2: We get the next day for <laughs>